0: Yo yo, what up everyone? This is your life coach Jacob Sokol and welcome to WTF should I do with my life. You're about to access a roadmap specifically designed for people in our generation, like you and me, who are looking to figure out how to create a life filled with happiness, success, and a deep sense of purpose while simultaneously dealing with the challenges of today. This interview is with Mastin Kip. Mastin's the founder of thedailylove.com, a website daily email, and Twitter account that serves soulful inspiration to the new generation. Oprah is dubbed Mastin as an up-and-coming thought leader of the next generation of spiritual thinkers. So in this interview, we're going to learn how to find the balance between having a good relationship with our family and at the same time doing things which they don't approve of or find realistic. We'll talk about how to go about figuring out what we should really do with our lives, how to deal with doubts when they creep up how to know when it's time to break up with our partner, and how to deal with breakups effectively and healthily.
1: Mastin, thanks so much for joining us, man.
2: Dude, you're so welcome. Stoked to be here. Thanks for having me.
1: Yeah, right on, dude. Well, I'm particularly excited to chat with you because you have one hell of a story, dude, and I just feel like getting that out there, getting that story in front of young adults and seeing how that relates to the challenges that we face today is going to be incredibly inspiring and empowering. So I'd love to start the chat by kind of going into your story and you know where you came from, how you got where you are today, and particularly what the challenges, what some of the biggest challenges were for you along the way.
2: Sure, yeah, I would love to tell it. It's funny, I, um, I remember a long time ago, you know, it was one of my yogi friends who was trying to get away from sort of the pain of his past, I, I, I trying to get to know him, I said, hey, uh, what's your story, man? And he goes, she goes, I have no story. And it was really funny. I was sharing the story once with Louise Hay, and I kind of asked her, like, what she thought about, like, not having a story. And her response was, she doesn't have a story. What a pity. <laughs> and I just thought it was so great because, like, even though, like, the things that happened in the past, um, you know, there's so much that can be learned learned from, from whatever we're going through. And, and You know, there was a point at which the thing that I was going through seemed painful. You know, I had the awareness that one day it would be a story that I would tell, so it's really cool to actually be able to tell it now.
1: (laughs) Yeah, right on, man. Well, thanks. Yeah. Cool. So I'd love to kind of give people more of a bit of a background as far maybe some of the personal stuff that you went through as coming into your young adult life, maybe around the time you were 18 and um, some of the challenges that you faced. And, and, I mean, I know a bit about your story, but I'd love for you to tell it firsthand and you can take it from there.
2: Sure. So, you know, I um, I really think that the, the first major challenge I experienced, I was actually about 12 years old. Um, I know that's not young adult, but it, it's formative for the rest of my life because I went to a Christian school and my parents are both biologists and we believe in evolution and, you know, went to a very sort of like conservative Christian school and they were teaching, us about um, the creation story, about how it was scientific fact, and I questioned it, and in questioning it, you know, was trying to, you know, suggest at the age of like 12 or 13 that, you know, maybe evolution, you know, people back in the time of biblical times didn't have the scientific knowledge to know what evolution was, couldn't they just be complicated, you know, this complicated issue in evolution, couldn't the creation story be a simple way to describe complicated scientific principles to like shepherds? Um, and I thought I was going to you know, be praised for that, and instead I was judged and passed out for that by a group of people that were supposedly all about love. And that really sort of like formulated for me like an anti-Christian, anti-religion sort of belief um, for a long time, which was really heartbreaking because I grew up in the church. And it was, it, it, that was like one of the first experiences that set me on my spiritual quest. And then the second one, which is when I was 16, I almost died, I fell... Um, down some stairs in my house, and the railing would do my arm, and I almost bled to death, and I can remember, like, laying on the ground, like, surrendering to the fact that I might be dying, and, like, kind of, like, being totally okay with it. I had this sense of peace around it. There was no um, anxiety or stress or worry, and, um, you know, obviously, you know, my dad was a medic, and he helped me out, um, and, you know, we got the ambulance. I got to the hospital in time, and I lived, but I can remember distinctly surrendering to the idea that, like, my death is here and I'm okay with it. And the combination of, like, those two events at a young age sort of set me apart from my peers because I wasn't really concerned with football practice or sports or any that type of stuff. I started asking, like, a lot of the deeper questions, and I really felt a sense of separation from everybody else. And because of that sense of separation, when I came to Hollywood, you know, I really sort of picked up a lot of the... Uh, you know, sort of requisite Hollywood bad habits, sex, like drugs, rock and roll lifestyle. And that drove me deeper and deeper and deeper into a sadness because I was trying, I felt so separated and so different and so alone. And it wasn't until I sort of hit rock bottom in that that I realized that I wanted to feel sort of as good off the drugs as I did on the drugs. And that was really the beginning of, like, you could say my quarter life crisis around the age of 22 years old um, that really was the foundation for what the daily love is now was going through that rock bottom. And for me, it was always trying to find a sense of belonging. I could never figure out where I belonged. I, I never quite fit in, um, no matter where I went. And when I realized that it wasn't really about fitting in, it was more about sort of adding value. And when you start to add value, people who um, need your specific value will find you, and that's how, you, that's how I at least created community. Does that make sense?
1: It does, yeah. And I'd love for you to talk more about this feeling of being separate, different, and alone, I think that's a common challenge that young adults faces, especially when they're faced with a challenge or they're faced with a situation, opposed to going to look for help. Oftentimes we seclude ourselves and kind of go inside and, and kind of think we'll handle it on our own. And I think that from my own experience and from the literature that I read, that that's the exact wrong approach to take, that we need community and we need people to support us in those times. So how were you able to deal with that?
2: Well, for a while, I wasn't. I didn't have the tools. And so that's why I turned to unhealthy relationships and drugs and alcohol because I, I, I didn't know how to cope. Um, and, you know, I really desperately wanted to get back to that. You know, you know when, when I was growing up, I would go to summer camp and I, was, you know, had friends in the neighborhood and I really had this sense of peace and wonder about the world. And somewhere along the way, I had lost that and I felt very separate and very alone. And it was really through trial and error, and what's interesting is that I'm kind of like a spiritual buffet. Like, I like to go do everything from, like, Buddhist meditation to, like, alkaline vegan to, like, kundalini yoga to hatha yoga to, like, baptism to, like, vipassana. Like, I just, like, I go, I I, I like to have, like, a smorgasbord to, like, personal growth and Tony Robbins events and You know, just like, you know, the forum. I mean, there's so many things that, like, I've dabbled in and experimented in. And for me, it all sort of boils back to a couple things. And the first thing is is self-acceptance, right? Being able to accept ourselves right where we are. Because if we can't, if we can't accept ourselves, then all personal growth is nothing more than mere entertainment. You might as well go watch a movie and watch someone else go through their hero's journey and not do it yourself. Because if we cannot accept ourselves right where we are, then we're never going to be able to really make a change or transformation because everything we do will be fueled by trying to get something outside of ourselves to fix us instead of recognizing that we don't need fixing, we just need self-acceptance. And when we can accept something for what it is, it doesn't mean that, it's lazy, that we're lazy or that we're sort of surrendered and, and, and apathetic. But, you know, and, and especially like in the 12-step process, the very first step is admitting that you're powerless, which is, Self-acceptance. I'm powerless over this addiction, and so that first step, you know, um, uh, Bill W., who created the 12-step process, was very inspired by Carl Jung and his work with sort of like the collective unconscious and archetypes and, and that mystical transformational process. So the 12-step process is deeply rooted in like hardcore sort of um, mysticism, if you will. And that first step of transformation doesn't have to be—you don't have to be in 12 steps. So that first step of saying you know, I have this problem or I'm overweight or I'm not happy with my life or I don't tell the truth in my relationships or I don't express myself because I'm scared of what will happen or I don't, I'm not going to do this because my parents won't approve, that first step of saying I'm this way there's a part of us that goes, ah, finally you stop bullshitting yourself. <laughs> you finally stop bullshitting yourself. Now I respect you a little bit. And there's a sense of levity that, that is created, a sense of lightness. And, and when I was able to do that with myself, I, could, I stopped running. I stopped trying to fix myself. I stopped trying to find my answer or solution in women or, or you know, jobs or significance-driven you know, endeavors and started to say, okay, what value can I bring to the world? And I think that you know, in the age that we live in with the Internet and social media and stuff like that, you know, like I live in Los Angeles, so urban sprawl is everywhere. It's very difficult to build community here in Los Angeles. But just pretty much everywhere now with technology, that's you know you don't really go over to your friend's house to hang out. It's like you just tweet them or text them, or Facebook them, and you think that a status update on Facebook is like catching up with your friend. And that's like we you know still creating a sense of community of people that have like-minded values is something that I'm very 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 passionate about because you know I can't remember who said it. I think it was Will Smith, and it was also probably Tony Robbins in one of his events said. You know, you can tell how far in life you'll go by the five people that you surround yourself with. And at the time, I took a cold, hard look at the people I was hanging out with, and I basically said, holy shit, I am fucked, if if that's true. (laughs) So I had to, like, really, like, shake it up and embrace the uncertainty and step into a life of I don't know where this is going, but I know that I'm stepping into the things that I love to do. I'm stepping into my purpose. I'm stepping into my calling. And I'm going to let go of everything that doesn't fit that. And going to be able to really, really step into, um, step into you know my purpose, and whatever fits that is great, and whatever falls away is fine too. So to be able to have that courage to say, you know what, like this is where I'm going, this is where I'm headed, and whoever doesn't fit into that, I'm sending them love. But like I'm only gonna, I'm only gonna fit people in my life who are on that on that level. Does that make sense?
1: It does. What happens when your parents don't fit into that? How do you maintain that balance between having a good relationship with our family and then at the same time doing things that they don't approve of or they just don't find realistic?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. So, you know, I had that talk with my parents, and luckily I have a really great relationship with my parents, so I can be very honest and forthcoming with them. Um, And it's one of those things where, you know, I think it was Abraham Maslow. And Abraham Maslow said that um, self-actualized people, that is, people who are living their dreams, people who are following their bliss, are independent of the opinion of other people. Self-actualized people are independent of the opinion of other people, and other people also include your parents. But the thing is, is that growing up, our parents are our source of love, so we kind of turn them into these higher power figures where mom and dad become God. And then later on in life, we realize, well, they're not really perfect the way we thought that they were. In fact, they have a lot of shortcomings. And in fact, wow, I actually might be better at certain things than my parents. And that process is called reparenting. And in the reparenting process, what we come to realize is that on a, on a, on a spiritual level, our mom is not our mom and our dad is not our dad, our, our source, our higher power, God, the divine is our higher power, and we were born to fulfill its will or our purpose, which is the same thing, and that our parents were vessels through which I or we came in order to be born, but ultimately my authority or my the, person, the, the entity that I, I, I follow is not my parents. It's the higher power, and that can be very disruptive in a family dynamic, and what tends mm-hmm. to happen with people who don't do this in a um, meaningful and graceful way If they can kind of get mad at their parents and say, screw you, I'm going to go do this and kind of rebel, especially if they've been repressed their whole life, that's not really the way to go about it. The way to go about it is to recognize that your parents are doing the best they can from their point of view. And, you know, one of the things that they want for us most of the time is financial certainty. And the thing about financial certainty is that if you put financial certainty ahead of living your dreams, chances are you won't take enough risk to actually live your dreams. And so while it's a good thing that our parents want us to be financially secure, the conversation around, well, is this best for their soul growth? Is is this best for their calling? Is this really what the universe and the divine or God wants my child to be doing? That conversation is like a relatively new conversation. And a lot of times that sort of requires each individual child to kind of go on their own adventure or their own journey or their own vision quest so that they can – find out for themselves what makes them happy and find their own source. And, you know, we don't really – this is a a progressive conversation that you'd be having with parents. Some parents are ready for it. Some parents aren't ready for it. But regardless, if you really feel that deep calling inside of you, it's a conversation that you have to have. And on top of that, it's not only a conversation that you have to have. It's a a, um, necessary action that you have to take to make your own approval and your own intuition and your own dreams more important and what your parents want for you. And the way that I did that is, you know, I um, there was a time in my life where I was had a company and a partner and I was dating a girl and I had a lot of sort of certainty in my life. And in, in a week, all of that fell away. And my partner was gone. My roommate gave me three-day notice, a 30-day notice. The girl that I was dating, she and I broke up. The investors pulled out of my company. I got doubt in my big foot. My lower back went out all at once in the same week. And it was a comp- crazy week. And so I had a choice. I could go back into the music business or I could, you know, as a joke, my ex-girlfriend's parents told me that I could go live in their pool house. And, you know, so I thought, well, what 28-year-old in his right mind would go live in his ex-girlfriend's pool house? Like it's humiliating enough to go move back in with your parents, but your ex-girlfriend's parents in the pool house seemed like ridiculous. So I did it, and I ended up living there for a year. But that that, that, that step that I took in. Living that, um, living that sort of strange choice that most people would never make, which made all the difference. And so while I was in the pool house, my parents were obviously concerned for me. And, you know, every time I would call home, they would say, you know, oh, that's great, and kind of hit at, well, when are you going to get a job, right? And after a while, it was so painful to hear them say that because I'm sitting here trying to pursue my dream, trying to do – the thing I know I need to do, trying to pursue my calling. And when I would call home and my parents said, when are you going to get a job? It was like they put a knife in my dream. And it was already hard enough doing what I was doing because I was living on a very limited budget in an eight-by-eight eight room that was barely big enough for my bed. Like, it was already hard enough. And I had an Internet company and no Internet connection in my where I was living. So it was very difficult. And so I had literally, uh, there were days where I had to go borrow Internet like out in the, out in the, um, in the, in the subdivision that I, I was in because, like, I didn't have it and Starbucks was closed. So, you know, that tells you sort of, you know, how crazy it was back then. So eventually, after I started calling home and my parents would have this conversation, one day I was just so fed up with it and I said, Mom, like, I love you. It's just not about not loving you. I love you so much. Like, you're my mom. I'm grateful for you. You've done nothing but support me my whole life and I know that you have your, the best intentions in mind. But here's the thing. When I call home, and you say, when are you going to get a job? The way I hear that is, I don't believe in your dream. And the way I'm showing up is, I believe in my dreams. This is what I'm going after. There's no other option for me. So we have a choice here. You can either help me and believe in my dreams and help inspire me and coax me in that direction, or not, which I respect your decision either way. It's your decision. But if you don't, and you keep asking me, when are you going to get a job? And what I'm going to do is stop calling home. Not because I don't love you. I love you tremendously, but I love my dreams more. That's what's important to me. And my mom didn't take it personally. We have a great relationship, and she got it, and we never had that conversation again. And it was a very difficult conversation to have, but I definitely believe that the quality of our life is directly related to the amount of difficult conversations we're willing to have with people, and especially people that are close with us. And so it was a necessary, difficult conversation to have, And it bore tremendous fruit because at that point forward, she went from being sort of like this unconscious critic to like, again, my biggest supporter. And she's always been my biggest supporter, but her concern for my quote well-being wasn't serving my soul. And so it was up to me to have that conversation with her because she was doing the best she could from her point of view. I can't expect her to read my mind and give me the love that I, I need without expressing and telling her what I need. So it was up to me to bring that up. And it was very difficult and very scary, but, You
1: know, I'm very happy that I did it. Yeah, bro, I had a real similar conversation with my dad, and one of my good friends, I was a kid I grew up with, kind of school. I used to do graffiti when I was young, so he kind of schooled me as a graffiti game when I was like 13 years old and was doing all types of crazy shit, running on subway tracks and climbing on rooftops, and he was really an older brother to me, and uh, he had, had, uh, so we grew older, and we kind of stopped spending as much time together for the reason that you suggested, which is you are the average of the five people you spend time with. And I'm like, it's probably not the best person for me to be hanging out with, although I love him. Yeah. And uh, one thing led to another, he ended up overdosing, and he oh, wow. passed away at a really young age. He was probably wow. um, 24, 25, and I went to his wake, and I came back yeah. from his wake, and I went out to dinner with my dad that night, and I guess, like, the putt. The the realness of that situation had cut me open so much that I was in such a vulnerable, raw, authentic place. And I had that conversation with my dad. It sounds really similar to the one that you had with your mom, which was, Dad, I love the fuck out of you. You are awesome. I respect you. I admire you. But I realized that, and this is a little different, but I realized that my whole life I've subconsciously been trying to become you, and it's not serving me. And I need to become myself, and that means you need to stop telling me what I should do with my life and it broke his heart. You know, like, I, like I, my dad, he's kind of not a real. He's like kind of a stoic dude, you know, he's kind of old school raised in that way. And he didn't cry, but it was like the closest I've ever seen him come to cry. And we just, yeah. we had dinner and we, we hugged it out afterwards, like literally a five minute long hug. And, uh, and it was, it was a pivotal moment in my life. I can completely relate to that process of kind of having to declare independence in a way. Um, and I, well, the next thing I wanted to ask you is that I feel like a lot of young adults really feel this pressure to pick the right path or job or career choice and that it feels so much like this is the decision that's going to define our lives. So when you were going through this pool house phase and you were living this way and you told your mom, hey, mom, I need you to stop, you know, trying to, I need you to stop telling me to get a job because you're stabbing my dreams. How did you know that that was your calling? How did you know that this was the thing that you were meant to do and you should be doing in your life?
2: It's a great question. Um, you know, whenever since I sort of got sober from um, cocaine, um, you know, I, uh, I uh, have wanted to, to be of service in some way and trying to figure that out. And, you know, once I got deeper into the personal growth material, which is very similar to storytelling, I knew that the rest of my life, would be dedicated to propagating this material in like a way that affects pop culture. Um, And as I was in the pool house, one of the things that happened about three or four months, I'm sorry, three or four weeks after I moved into the pool house was somehow Kim Kardashian found me on Twitter. And as a result of that, she tweeted out to like, you know, a couple, like a million or two people, um, you know, follow Daily Love, it's great. So after that, we went from 1,000 followers to 10,000 followers overnight. And it was amazing. And at that point, I kind of was like, all right, that's a sign from God that I'm doing the right thing. And because, and I'm convinced that, that she found it, however, she found it, because um, I took a leap. And it was like a direct response to that leap. And ever since then, I just followed it and it never let me down. It was just a, it was just a gigantic leap of faith. Have I ever, like, 100% known? It's never been 100%. It's always been, like, 99.9999999%. There's always that little shred of doubt, like, am I really doing the right thing? Yeah, how do you deal with that doubt? Um, I, just, I just, I just, you know, luckily I had done a thing called Vipassana meditation. And basically what that is is you go away and you basically sit still for 10 hours a day, which is, like, for me, like, Mr. ADD is, like, hell. <laughs> and one of the things that you do is, you know, you watch your thoughts come and go. And so what I, re- what I realized as I did my Vipassana is that I don't have to believe every single thought that I was thinking. And so when doubt would come, I just said, oh, look, there's doubt. But I didn't like act on it. I just said, okay, well, I'm having doubt right now, but it doesn't necessarily mean that's who I am. And I just let it, um, I let it, um, you know, just be there without having to do anything about it, you know.
1: Yeah, that's one of the biggest, most liberating things that I've ever experienced in my life was the separation between who I am and what I thought. And that, in a sense, is really what planted the seeds and laid the groundwork for me to do the work that I do today was to know, because back in the day, if I thought a thought and that thought was crazy – I thought that I was crazy, and it wasn't until I did some long-term travel and kind of broke my patterns and my habits until I realized, like, holy shit, just because I thought a crazy thought doesn't mean I'm a crazy person. If if I'm not a crazy person, life is, you know, unlimited. I can do anything. Um, And it was really that moment of, like, true potential that I realized, holy shit, I can reprogram my mind. I think it was in one of the classes I TA'd with you, and I know that you go deep and and really dig into a lot of times – what that voice is that we hear in our head. Um, I'd love for you to talk more about anything you're inspired in that realm. And I, I know so much of it has to do with when we were re- really young, whose love we sought after and, and kind of what, how that programmed and shaped us. So if you could share kind of more about where that voice in our head comes from and how we can deal with that.
2: When you say voice, what do you mean by vo- which voice? The doubt voice? Yeah, so say it again. You mean the
1: doubt voice? The, yeah, the doubt, voice, the fear. Like I know you just saw the immersion week on um, using fear as fuel and um, kind of figuring out that fear, that doubt, that holy shit, am I like, good enough to do this? Um, kind of where that comes from and how we can deal with that.
2: Well, it's a great question. primarily, uh, it comes from you know two places. One, you want to kind of look at like growing up. Like whose love did you crave more, your mom's or your dad's? Like this is classic. Tony Robbins 101, right? Like whose love did you crave more? Did you crave moms or dads? And depending on that, the question then becomes who did you have to become to get your mom or dad's love, right? So most people will say I had to get good grades, I had to follow the rules, I had to fit in, I had to be perfect, I had to do other things. And then the next question is who could you never be? Who could you never be to get, you know, your parents' love? And usually it's I can never be myself on some level and then we ask well what is that self and it's like a free and creative and spontaneous and excited and dangerous and all types of stuff and so we just don't have any practice allowing ourselves to be who we are because growing up you know we weren't able to get the love from our parents that we thought we that that that, that we needed unless we fit their model of the world the other place that the doubt comes from is a very healthy place which is from our nervous system and there's a part of our brain called the amygdala, which is the fight-or-flight response. And the fight-or-flight response is, you know, something that's evolved, uh, you know, part of our nervous system as a human being has evolved over millions of years from amoeba to what we are now. And this part of our body is designed to help us survive. And so it's, it's important that when doubts or fears come to not make yourself wrong for having them, but to go, you know what, this is just part of my body trying to keep me safe. What am I really afraid of here? And in the past, the things that I've been super afraid of—have they actually canned out? And usually, like nine times out of ten, what you'll find out is that the thing that you're most afraid of never actually happens. And so, it's one of those things that it just takes constant work, constant practice, constant sort of evolution of your own um, of your own experiences to realize and test these things. But doubt is one of those things that should be there. And you know, sometimes it's normal to be afraid. Like if you're walking down an alley and there's a guy with a gun in the alleyway, like, you should be afraid. You don't want to sit there and go, well, I want to face my fear. Like, no, get the hell out of there, (laughs) right? It's really, like, about, like, but when we talk about, like, the practical things like starting a business or saying, yes, I love you, or that moment of decision, it's in those moments where we say, you know what, step into your fear. Does that make sense?
1: It does. Absolutely do. I'm glad that we unpacked that a little bit more. I want to transition the conversation a little bit, and I've heard you talk about the old job model versus the new job model. And I think it'd be really cool if you could touch on that a little bit because in the U.S., I mean, it's nuts. We have a trillion dollars in student debt, which is more than we have in consumer debt. So being a young adult and not really having that awareness of the system and just going through the system without the, holy shit, this is what I'm setting myself up for, um, I read in the Huffington Post the average college graduate accumulates 25 grand in debt by the time they graduate, and then they come out of college and they're like, okay, what the fuck do I do? Because there's no jobs. So do I go work in Starbucks, or how do I pay back this debt? Um, so I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about the old job model versus the new job model and um, what your thoughts are on that.
2: Sure. Well, for whatever reason, I, didn't, I never like, existed in like, the old job model. Um, and, you know, it's just like I've always sort of existed in the new job model. I also, um, you know, uh, dropped out of college. So I have no student debt, um, and I never had any. Um, but the one thing I will say is that the old job model that, I, that you know, I, I participated in it for like a year or two when I was working in Hollywood and trying to climb the corporate ladder, it's all about what can I get, right? What benefits can I get? How can I increase my hourly or how can I increase my yearly salary? Um, you know, how can I get more vacation days? How can I get the better job than my coworker? You know, and at the end of the day, we realize that the corporate carrot that we're chasing, there's nothing really at the end of it, except for maybe, if we're lucky, a middle-class retirement. And we live in this this, this mindset where it's like, I'm going to delay my gratification and happiness until I'm old. And instead of having the best, most productive years of my life be doing the things that I love, I'm going to save that till I'm 60 or 70 or 80, and then have 10, 20, maybe years where I actually get to enjoy life. And quite frankly, that's a fucked up model. That's a completely fucked up model. And I don't really understand. How, you know, I mean, I'm, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm just a different type of guy. And for me, it's like I want to enjoy life now. I want to have many retirements. I'm sorry, mini retirements. Um, you know, throughout my life. And you know, Tim Ferriss talks a lot about this in his Four Hour Work Week as well. But the idea that, like, you know, now it's not about what can I get from an employer. The fundamental question has shifted. The new question is what value can I bring to the world? What value can I bring to the world? And everybody has value whether they know it or not. And this is about giving your gift to the world. And one of my favorite quotes around this is a quote from Christ in the Gnostic Gospel of Thomas where Jesus says, if you bring forward what is within you, what you bring forward will save you if you do not bring forward what is within you, what you do not bring forward will destroy you. If you bring forward what is within you, what you bring forward will save you. If you do not bring forward what is within you, what you do not bring forward will destroy you. And so if you look around, you know, a lot of people have jobs, and why do we want jobs in the first place, right? Why do we want to be accountants or lawyers? I dare fucking to you if I sat down with every person coming out of law school and said, Do you really want to be an attorney? Probably not even half of them would say yes. They want to be an attorney for the money or because it's what their parents want. And what they really want, I don't know what they really want, but I can tell you that the way the world is moving now, it's not about going after a certain six-figure job. It's about creating value in life and adding value to people um, by giving your gift. And so I think it's like a necessary shift because what we're experiencing is a tremendous amount of pain right now, but that's how human beings learn. That's how we grow. When people are successful, they party, and when they are not successful, they ponder. When people are successful, they party, and when they're not successful, they ponder, right? And so right now is a massive time of pondering to say, is the education system, is this really the right way to do it? You know, there's a whole new movement called unschooling that's happening where, you know, parents are taking the power back from how they educate their children. Um, You know, apprenticeship is a really big deal. The Internet is opening up all kinds of different um, automation potential for being able to, you know, automate passive income that's five or six figures, you know, a month, no joke. So there's a lot of different new tools, but the thing is, is that a lot of people are trying to get something from a system that was, you know, something that was created a long time ago, and it's kind of like trying to download an iPhone app on a 386. Like it's just not going to work. You know, it's like you got to upgrade, Then we got to upgrade our thinking, we got to upgrade our model. And the new model is what can I give, not what can I get. And it's scary because we're not taught that we have something to give. That's not what we're taught. What we're taught is go get a good job. And it's a fundamental shift. But what's happening is that, you know, there's a whole, for every unemployed student that's out there, you know, there's also someone who's starting up a business and learning how to be an entrepreneur and adding value to the world. And for me, you know, that being said, I also want to say that I fully believe in education, I, I constantly, constantly, constantly am learning and educating and, and, and making, you know, increasing my knowledge. But the way that I do it is through the things that I'm passionate And I have never used calculus once in high school. I'm sorry. I never have. You know what I mean? But, like, and it was so boring. And, I, and like, the things in it's like, but when it comes to, like, studying the things I'm passionate about, like, I can't stop it. I get a freaking Amazon box once a week with so many books that I'm good for three years. You know, so it's just like it's about being able to re, reprioritize and say the most important thing is not what can I get, it's what can I give. And by giving it, how can I give my gift so that as I'm giving it, I'm enjoying my life. Imagine that. You can actually enjoy your life before your retirement. That's also a new thought. But this is where we're going. And so I think it's a fundamental shift that we're seeing, but the long-term effect of it, you know, 10, 20, 30 years down the line, is we're going to have a completely different point of view on retirement we're going to realize yeah, that we
1: can be happy now. Yep, right on, man. And one of the ways that you give your gifts to the world is through the daily love, and you do coaching and mentoring through there. Um, and I think it's so cool, man. I've sat in on a ton of your classes, TA'd them, and to hear how you work with people and the one-on-one mentoring that you do, it's particularly around relationships, which is around that – is incre- you know incredibly relevant to young adults, relevant to everybody really, but it's such a new thing for us. We're figuring out what is dating, what is relationships, what works, what doesn't. What do you think some of the most common problems young adults face uh, are when it comes to relationships and dating?
2: Well, I think the number one issue these days is, and I mean, can I use like I I I have to use some cuss words right now? Is that okay?
1: Dude, fucking go for
2: it. Okay. We have a bunch of chicks walking around with cocks strapped on and a bunch of dudes walking around with a vagina. It's like we have this depolarization where, like, women have become men and men have become women. It's completely messed up. And by the way, this isn't, like, just a straight thing. This is, like, LGBT thing, too, because we've depolarized ourselves. And the women's liberation movement gave women success, but it did not give them love. And we have completely messed up our whole gender sort of like profile where basically, you know, just because a woman is like the six-figure earner in a household or just because a a daughter had to become a jock to get her father's love, which I see all the time, doesn't give her the right to go into a relationship and emasculate her man. Likewise, a lot of guys have been raised with these super masculine moms and because of it, have basically become pushover pussies. And that's not hot. That's not stepping into their, into their true masculine nature. And I see this all the time. And it's, we've completely lost sight of what a man is and some idea that you know, taking care of or nurturing the female is like anti-feminist or some shit. And it's crazy because I guarantee you, every single woman I talk to who's a powerful woman, who's one of my clients, at the end of the day, when she comes home, she wants a man who's gonna help her feel successful I'm sorry, help her feel safe and secure. So she can relax and be feminine, but she doesn't know that she's safe to do that. And we have lost this in our society. And being able to remember this and learn these techniques is huge. And I spend so much time educating men and women on what being a man really is, or what being a woman is. And it's not misogynistic, it's not patriarchal, it's in our DNA. If you go back and study the work of Carl Jung, Carl Jung will share with you that a man's deepest psychic need is for his thoughts to be respected. And a woman's deepest psychic need is for her feelings to be cherished. And we we can remember that. And when a woman can stop making men wrong, when I say man and woman, I'm saying masculine energy, feminine energy. Masculine energy, feminine energy. When the feminine energy in a relationship can stop making the masculine energy wrong for their thoughts. And the masculine energy can make the feminine energy's feelings more important than their own. You start to polarize again, and that's what creates amazing relationships. And this is, I mean, I can't tell you how many times, like, my clients will emasculate me without even knowing it have to call them out. Or I go out into yoga class, or I go to Whole Foods, and I see how people interact, and it's pervasive. This gender, like, men have stopped being men in a lot of ways, and women have stopped being women because they switch roles. And it doesn't lead to long-term sustainable happiness or passion. And what happens, as this goes on long term relationships, is that you go from being passionate lovers to basically roommates. And that's something that I'm super passionate about sort of correcting.
1: Yeah, so how do we deal with that in a culture that has women in really high-powered roles, which good for them. You know, awesome. Let them be successful right on. This is my mom. This is my sister. This is, I want them to have all the success that I have. And then, like I used to work as an IT guy. So I would go into these companies and I would see these really high powered women who are hot. I was like, I'd love to date them, but kind of being the service dude who comes in to check email when email's not working or, you know, make sure the server file sharing is up. Um, I kind of have to respect that role, so I'm I'm kind of betting here that a lot of dudes feel similar when they work in environments where the, where it is more of a work situation, opposed to someone who you're already dating. How do we how do we deal with those polarizations at that point, or is it just like okay, keep it work related? You're not dating this chick, so don't step out of line.
2: Well, I think first of all, you know, I'm a big believer in, in work like don't shit where you eat for the most part, but it's normal and okay for women to be in the masculine at work. And I don't mean like they become a man. I'm just talking about masculine energy, like make shit happen. That's masculine energy. Everybody has feminine and masculine energy inside them. When a woman is at work and she has her balls on and she's producing and making shit happen, that's fine. When she goes home and she takes that same balls and energy home, that's where the issue starts to happen. Does that make sense? So as a man, what I would do is I wouldn't let him get away with that shit. I would not let a woman emasculate me. I would let her know, not in a mean way, not in a cruel way, but in a very, you know, aware way. Does that make sense? And, you know, a lot of times, you know, women don't have this training or this awareness. You know, there's this thing that Marianne Williamson talks about. When a woman comes home, of having goddess hour, where you have like a half hour, an hour, where you should take a bubble bath, you know, does some breathing, does some yoga, drink some wine, and relaxes. And makes the shift from ball buster in the office to feminine at home. And, you know, for us as guys, it's about being able to our power back and, you know, not let, not let women emasculate us. And, like, stand up, take direction. Say This is what we're going to do. Like, let's go this way. You know, of course, correct, obviously, for her, for her thoughts and her feelings, but really step up and, like, be the man and not be afraid of it. And I think that, you know, women will ultimately respect that. And I know, like, in my own relationship with Jenna, we have amazing, um, an amazing relationship because we understand these principles. And our relationship is amazing because of it, you know. Um, there was a time when I made my feelings more important than her own, and that was not good. You know, so it's really just about understanding these principles. I mean, that could be a whole other call.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. About this
2: stuff. But I um, want to make a know. distinction.
1: I want to get a little bit of clarity. So this polarization—correct me if I'm wrong—but the way I understand it is that it's for attraction. And attraction, no matter if you've been dating for a week or you've been dating for ten years, that ultimately we need this polarization of the masculine, the feminine, the dominant, the dominant, the passive. Um, kind of these kind of two different ends of the spectrum in order to create attraction. So not so much in order to create roles in society or the way that we should exactly. behave, but this is really for attraction that we're talking about yeah. here.
2: This is like this is like if you want to be in a relationship where you can't wait to take the other person's clothes off, this is what you have to do. If you just want a roommate, keep doing what you're doing. right? <laughs> and this is not some statement about you know, women's place in society and blah, blah, blah. Like, I'm all for empowering women. My community is 93% female. All my clients except for two are feminine. I spend my whole day uplifting women. I'm all for women's empowerment. And I'm also all for them getting their bodies ravaged by the person of their dreams in a passionate way as often as possible. And if they want that, this is how you got to do it. (laughs)
1: Right on, dude. Well, I want to honor your time, and there's one more topic I want to touch on before we conclude, and it's a question that I've heard asked on Sensify before, and the question is, how do we know in a relationship when it's time to say, all right, that's enough, let's split ways, let's break up?
2: Um, I don't think there's, like, one steadfast answer, but I can tell you that if you're being yourself, like, okay, first of all, in relationships, a lot of times people don't tell the truth. And when you don't tell the truth in a relationship, passion also fades. So the first thing you want to do is say, if I don't have passion or this isn't working, am I really telling the truth? And not like in a mean way, like in a very gracious way. If you're not telling the truth, the first thing you want to do, start telling the truth. If you start telling the truth and things still aren't working out and you're like, you know, in bed, and really not wanting the other person to be there, kind of like not, you know, can't wait until like pretending to be asleep when they get in the bed or any of that type of stuff, you know you're in deep trouble. But it's really something that you feel on the inside when you like come to believe that the future of their relationship is not going to be as good as the past. And people have to come to that on their own terms. But if you're telling the truth and people aren't in alignment with your truth and you're not in alignment with their truth, and not like your like unconscious truth where like you can justify everything you think and all your feelings to quote, your truth. I mean, like, who you are, your nature, your goals, your passions, your desires, the type of life that you want to design for yourself, all that type of stuff. If, if you come to find out you're truly not in alignment with that person, with that, that, with, with that, and you guys aren't on the same page, then it's time to cut the cord. But you want to give yourself the opportunity to tell the truth and grow. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, that's awesome, man. Thrilled that we got that out there. And then part two to that question would be, how do we deal with breakups in such a challenging time? Like our, our frame for life just gets shattered and like life is all over the place. So how do we go about, how do we go about dealing with breakups? All right. number one,
2: for thirty, do this for 30 days. Don't sleep with anyone. Don't flirt with anyone. Don't have any contact with your ex. Also, no drinking, no sugar. Eat an alkaline diet. Drink lots of green juice. Do kundalini yoga three times a week. Get the fuck off of social media, no checking his Facebook, no checking his Twitter, no checking his Instagram, and surround yourself with people who are are uplifting you and who are your friends, and just take a social media detox. Do the kundalini yoga, take care of yourself, do not have rebound sex, because rebound sex creates oxytocin addiction, which is part of the reason why you're going through a withdrawal after a breakup. It's not just emotional, it's also biochemical. Take care of yourself. For thirty days, be the person after the breakup and when you see them 30 or 60 or 90 days later, they look at you and go, Damn, you look good. Shit, I shouldn't have left. And like be that person. Really take care of yourself. And that to me is what I, I, I have a whole process I take people through called the Love friends and that's sort of a preview of some of the stuff that we do. But for real people, get off social media, stop Facebook stalking, knock that shit off.
1: Bam, you know, you had that answer totally queued up. I thought by the time I was done with the question, you had it all out there. So awesome, man. I know people are going to get a ton out of that. Last question is, what do you know now that you wish you knew 10 years ago?
2: It's all about instead of trying to get more love from being important or, you know, more love from being significant, the journey is about getting significance from being loving. It's the opposite. People think that the more important they become, the more love that they'll get. And that's, that's not true. The truth is the more loving you are, the more important you will become.
1: Awesome, bro. Max, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us and uh, love your wisdom, love how much you share and uh, how relevant and valid and just ground grounding it is. So, man, thank you so much, dude. <laughs>
0: Awesome. You're so welcome, Jacob. It's my pleasure. So let's look at a few of my favorite big ideas from this interview. Big idea number one is self-acceptance. If we can't accept ourselves, then all personal growth is mere entertainment might as well go watch a movie. If you can't accept yourself right where you are, you won't be able to make a change in transformation because everything you do will be fueled by trying to get something outside of yourself instead of recognizing that you don't need fixing, you need self-acceptance. This doesn't mean you're apathetic. It's kind of like the 12-step program where the first step is admitting that you're powerless. When you accept yourself exactly as you are, you can stop running and looking for a fix somewhere else brings us to big idea number two, self-approval is more important than parental approval. You know, your parents are doing the best that they can from their point of view and what they want for us most of the time is financial security. But the thing about putting financial security ahead of your dreams is that most of the time we won't take enough risk to actually live our dreams. You've got to make your own approval, your own intuition and your own dreams more important than what your parents want from you. You'll probably need to have a difficult conversation with your parents, explaining to them that you love them but that your dreams are more important than their approval. And as Mastin says, the quality of your life is directly related to the amount of difficult but necessary conversations you're willing to have. Big Idea Number 3, the old job model versus the new job model. So the old job model is all about what can I get, how can I increase my hourly, what type of benefits are available, how can I get more vacation days. For the most part, we're chasing a carrot that in the end, if we're lucky, brings us a middle-class retirement. It's all about delaying gratification until we're old. The new job model is all about enjoying life right now. It's not about what I can get from my employer, but instead, what value can I bring to the world? And everyone has value whether we know it or not. It's not about going after that six-figure job. It's about creating value and giving your gifts. Soul Sibling, thank you so much for rocking with us. I appreciate you and I appreciate that you're using your time and your energy toward making yourself a better person and the world a better place. So if you'd like to keep in touch, I'd love it if you subscribe to the podcast and I'm excited to deepen our relationship to get to know each other better over time and to see how I can help you solve meaningful challenges and create your most fulfilled life. We've got a great community over here. And we run retreats all over the world. We've got people who connect with each other and support each other in living the most fulfilled life. And what I'd suggest for your next step is to grab a copy of the 12 things happy people do differently. It's a scientific-based approach to happiness, and there's a lot of great wisdom out there, but this in particular is researched back from some of the world's leading positive psychologists in the world, and it's super grounded, super practical, how you could do these 12 things that happy people do differently and rock it. The article's been shared over 100,000 times on Facebook, and there's some magic in there. So in order to grab a copy of that, you can go to thankyoujacob.com. Sounds simple? And it is. Thankyoujacob.com. And uh, grab that immediately, and I will keep in touch through personal emails that I send out a couple times a month and all that goodness. So for now, sending you lots of love. Keep it real. Follow your heart, but bring your head. Peace.